Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Oh, the number of things that have gone wrong this weekend, oh. Marie. So what, what's gone wrong? What's the litany of stuff Oh, my goodness. So first off, Katie isn't here. Oh, well. Katie's been Katie's been on an externship. And so every time Katie's gone and I have to cook for myself, I end up stabbing myself. <laughs> and this time the stab is really bad. I like I, I seriously thought I had stabbed my way through my finger. So I was like, I was like, I'm going to have to go to the hospital. And thank God this bandaid is like keeping the blood in. Like it, 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 it's not as bad as I thought it was. But like. So, okay, here's what happened. You know those dried sausages you can get at Whole Foods? Yes, yeah. You, you, you can get them in other places, too. If you, like, live in an area that has a big, like, like you know, like, Hispanic or, like, um, I mean, I yeah, guess yeah, even yeah. Germans yeah, have, like, like, dried sausage, whatever. But so, like, I'm used to them. I'm used to them from, like, an Italian perspective. Like, yeah. you know, you buy them in a whatever. So I, the ones you buy at Whole Foods, though, I really don't like the casing on them. They're, like, really, mm -hmm. the casing is, like, super gross on those ones. So yeah. I actually, I take the casing off of it. Before I eat them, right? Mm -hmm. So I was, I cut this, the dried sausage. I went to peel the thing off. And then like a moron, it like wasn't coming. It was like stuck in like a crack in, or not like a crack, like a fold in the sausage meat. And I was like, I know I can use this extremely sharp knife to get this out. Oh. And so I stabbed in to like get it off the thing. And instead I stabbed just like the force of it stabbed way too hard, went right into my finger. Oh, it was bad, Marie. Oh. So that, so that went bad. Cute. That went bad. I almost I almost cut off my finger uh, cutting sausage. Then um, it's just it's just been a, it's just been a whole a whole series of disasters. Um, we have these like lights on our balcony that we're not supposed to have. And so before someone came to visit the apartment, I like took the, the, the lights off so that the landlord wouldn't see that we have these lights on our apartment balcony right. and shattered one of the lights. And there's just there's just glass out there now. It's like a death trap. It's it's really not been going great. Anyways, dear listeners, a look into the life of me. You know, don't let anyone tell you a degree is worth anything because, you know what? I got a PhD. Dude, like I can hardly take care of myself. Pool. We should have the mad scientist death pool about what is going to finally do in Doctor Christopher Cox. I can it be. A it's nice gonna be. It's going to be something Broken stupid. Glass. It's going to be something stupid. It's going to be like I accidentally eat a whole thing of dishwasher detergent or something. <laughs> and like Katie's at home. The, so, you know, I just die. And I assume you're not on the first floor. Since you said balcony, I'm assuming you're up a level. No, we're on the top floor, fifth floor. Oh, there we have it. I dropped Your my listeners. cell phone off of that once. I am now drawing up some odds. <laughs> For if not a death pool, at least grievous bodily harm. At least an urgent care visit. It's already happened. It's already happening, I mean, Marie. It's happening I all around you, us. You could come up with like, it, it is like an equation. It would be like the length of time that Katie's gone. The amount of like energy you have to decide to do some sort of like, I know what I'm going to do this weekend. I think I'm going to <laughs> X, bungee jumping. You know, I think I'm going to try and fix the roof or whatever it is. Right. I'm going to hang pictures. Right. Times, 
you know, the where you are, like if you are above fifth floor. Yeah, you're. Yeah, I think that looks pretty good. I think that looks pretty good for for a bet pool. All right. Well, <sighs> this week we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about sexism in science and not Christopher Cogswell actually dying. No, no, we're not talking about my death just we'll yet. That. Although we're going to save that for sweeps week. Although, yeah, when I do get grievously bodily harmed, I do hope we cover it on the show, or at least you do, Marie, in my absence. Um, so. Oh. Yeah. So this episode, <laughs> we are talking about sexism in the sciences. Uh, we actually have a really great, a really great episode planned. We have a really, we had a really good interview too with a journalist who's covering this topic uh, right now, or he, he has covered it in the past, Micah Emil Duke, that you'll be hearing here too. And uh, and yeah, we're just going to talk about this issue that really has been, in some ways, coming coming to a head. I think finally, you know, because. It's been such an issue over time, but we've kind of not given it the kind of attention that it deserves. So uh, so we're going to go into it and talk about this a little bit more and, you know, uh, really just just dig into this topic. All right. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. This week's episode, Chris, put down that knife. Don't get near anything sharp. Stay alive for Katie's sake. <laughs> and the cats, at least until Katie gets back. Oh, my God. The cat. Well, the cats would just eat you. So that's OK. Oh, yeah. The cats would be fine. Mm -hmm. Cats would be good. So cats are looking at you like, that's right. That's right, man. Go ahead. That's right. We're Fight with that sausage some more. <laughs> you so good. We can eat you and the sausage then. So. <laughs> This week, uh, like Sorry. we said, we're no, it's fine. Yeah, we're delving into sexism in science, and specifically, yeah. we're talking about uh, you know, well, it's a it's a larger, I think, question or a larger issue than we usually give credit to, especially as scientists. We 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 hear about it. You do hear about it from time to time, but when you hear about it, you kind of yeah, I don't know. I think people tend to think that it's. Not doesn't happen in college, doesn't happen in postgrad, doesn't happen in the sciences where it's, you know, where you're supposed to have more. What's the word I'm looking for? You're supposed to be above that type of thing in some ways. I mean, it's of course, that's a total myth, right? It's like I look at this as like basically, especially with this article, is almost like this tiny, thin little sliver of what is completely rampant behavior, but it hasn't really come out yet which is sexism in college you know and sort of in higher education yeah in a lot of ways so which yeah yeah so this all really came about so there have been a couple of really big name issues that have come up or big name scientists i guess that have been kind of taken down by these uh, by these bad actions that they performed or alleged to have performed you know one of the bigger problems with this is that there is no there is corroboration from the point of view of the victims, but it can mm -hmm. be very, very hard for these claims to be proven. And so really alleged, I guess, is the best that we can say. But I, I think as we get into it, I think it's going to, you know, th this is alleged is, you know, this is alleged like Casey Anthony is alleged to have killed her daughter. Right. Like, it's like, oh, she did it. OK, it's fine. Dark. So. Pretty dark fast. <laughs> Pretty well, dark. an alleged again as a as a legal term, insofar as you were if you were going to bring criminal charges 
against someone to serve time or even civil civil to um, recoup money against the institution or the individual that's that requires a a certain burden of proof which is pretty big you know and it's like i think that that's and that's made out to be even more of a hurdle when these when people are when women are thinking of coming forward with things like this yeah so so here's i guess kind of the groundwork for this right so Mm -hmm. so first off in in the sciences right we have very very the sciences are a weird field in general for someone to become a professional in because there is like an extended almost apprenticeship period between undergraduate and postdoctoral studies. Right. And we've, we've touched on this a bit mm-hmm. in our previous episodes on like how science actually happens and what it takes to become a scientist and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. But the basic idea is that the basic idea is that you in undergraduate, you try to find a, a professor that you want to do research with oftentimes and in doing that research in their lab, and really that research by by research, what I mean for undergraduates, that usually means cleaning dishes and pipetting stuff and helping out a grad student and whatever, right? And sometimes it takes on a more hands-on role, and that's great when that does happen, but a lot of the times it's kind of a formal apprenticeship. Like, you're just getting your, you're starting to get your hands dirty, but you aren't running experiments on your own. Mm-hmm. You then apply to graduate school. And you become a graduate student and that relationship between graduate student and advisor is very weird. Even in the best cases where nothing improper happens, it is a it is a weird relationship, right? Because. Yeah, like, why is it weird? Like, just without any kind of impropriety happening, it seems very. It seems really strange in a lot of like, it seems like it should be a healthy mentorship in the best of all possible worlds. But I can imagine that happens it's not but it's not it's not even it's not even a mentorship though it's more like it really is very akin to you know you look at game of thrones or like (laughs) any of those things well seriously like uh when when aria becomes the apprentice uh faceless man whatever exactly it's actually more similar to that relationship almost where you are with your if your advisor isn't physically with you most of the day, every day for those five years, they're at least mm-hmm. texting or emailing you there. You become people. <laughs> hopefully not. You become a constant like they become a constant part of your life. Even even still, my advisor, we we talk to each other probably once a week like that. Yeah, uh-huh. It's a very it's a much closer relationship, I think, than people realize at first. And it it's it is very much so almost like the mentor and mentee, but it's almost I think again more similar to like the master and the student, or like a that relationship means more than it did previously, right? Because this person is really they're they are literally paying for you directly, like their grant money pays your salary, right? And you're doing research for them. So you're constantly at their beck and call. So 24 mm-hmm. hours a day, some advisors expect you to, an- I mean, most advisors, I think, I think all advisors, honestly, expect you to at least answer a phone call if it comes in at night. Cause that, that means something weird is happening, mm-hmm. right? That that's out of the ordinary. They expect you to take responsibility for this work in this lab, 
and everything else that happens in it. So you're expected to be available. If someone wants to use a, a piece of equipment in your lab, you should be there. You're expected to go to conferences and travel with your advisor and, you know, kind of be around with them. And, you know, it's it's almost like a, a I hesitate to say this because it's going to sound stupid, but it's almost like Batman and Robin relationship where this is like a, a wealthy person who's uh, wealthy in the sense that they're paying your lifestyle, at least. Um, well, who is grant. they're not. They, it's not coming out of their pocket. No, no, no. But it's coming under their right? grant money that came from their money. work and their name. Yeah, right? but the work you're doing is going is all on their is all on their behest, right? It's like it will make or break their hypothesis, right? Not always. No, not always. Oh. Sometimes, sometimes uh, students are given more free reign than that. But I guess, oh. but but I guess what I'm trying to get across is that it's mm-hmm. it's much more of an almost parental relationship right you become a part of this person's life and they become a part of yours uh or just vigilante and their ward well just with. yeah just from just from closeness and working relationship and the amount of energy and time that you spend together and mm-hmm. really again that relationship does not end at graduation you know i'm like i said still working on papers and textbook chapters and ideas and talking to the you know graduate students that are in the lab now email me for questions and help you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that relationship does not get severed and it's it remains even closer if you go into academics right if you stay as a uh-huh. if you stay as a uh, hopeful to become a professor then usually the way it works is after graduate school after you get your phd you become a postdoc usually that means a postdoc in a lab of one of your professor's friends Right. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that that relationship, that like pedigree of science is extremely important to the way science is done for better or for worse. Right. And then when you finally uh, when you finally get done with your postdoc, if you only have one, sometimes you have many and go out to try to become a professor. Those are the people you're looking towards to be like, hey, you know, do you know someone at whatever the university of Pennsylvania. Can you get me in? Do you know someone in Michigan? Do you know someone wherever, right? Like these are the folks that are making those connections for you and having you now come give, give research talks to make your name and to get you into the field. So right. now like, do you feel like your do you feel like your, um, do you feel like your example of how you've gone about it is pretty representative or is it more exemplary? Like I look at you and I think that, you're actually probably more an exemplary example of, of that type of success and that type of relationship is, or do you feel like that there's sort of a spectrum and some people may or may not, you know, like they may, they may have not as close of a relationship or, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I, you know, like I totally get what you're saying. I'm just kind of curious if that's, if that is, um, indicative of, of like no, what yeah. sort of percentage. Right. That is, there is certainly a spectrum, right? So mm-hmm. I would say it's interesting. The younger the professor or the, the earlier into their career, mm-hmm. the closer the relationship usually is because, yeah. because they're trying, mm-hmm. first off, they remember being a grad student, right? More closely. They also are trying to make their name. So they really need their grad students to do well, Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's going to make or break their career. If on the other hand, 
you're you you start to work in a lab with a professor who's you know got tenure. He's been tenured for thirty years. He or she, mm-hmm. um, they don't give a they don't care necessarily. Like the best ones will care, right? How mm-hmm. well you do. But I would say the vast majority though are kind of more hands off in their approach because they know, you know, uh, my my work is going to continue. I'm going to start letting people be more creative with their work is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, you know, they have 50 students, some of them 50, 60 students, how it's not even possible for them to, if they give an hour to every student a week, there's no, there's no time for anything else. Right. And so in those cases, the postdocs role becomes more important than the professors in some ways, at least for the individual student, because the postdoc is the one that's guiding their research. Does that make right. sense? So yeah, totally. reg- regardless, though, there is some relationship in there that is extremely close, that involves traveling together, that involves being together every hour of most days, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Well, and this is the person that's going to vouch for you. This is the person that's going to be your credibility in the lens of your success in a lot of ways. 100%. Yeah. So it becomes a very big it becomes, I think, a big issue in that 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 setting is very, very fertile for impropriety, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's even more than a normal, say, job, right? I, so I would say that it it does really depend, but that that chance is still there 100 percent for mm-hmm. for everyone. Right. So mm-hmm. very, very easy for things to go, uh, go sideways, let's say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would say that, you know, in working in sort of a working field, you have certain relationships that may start to mirror that after a period of time within companies. 100%. Right? Well, like yeah. If it's- you're working for someone, they are, and they are mentoring you for the next, for, you know, succession or whatever it looks like, those types of things come up there as well. Maybe not to the extent that it's, it seems like within your field, it's a very narrow, it's sort of more of a narrow, um, a narrow group of people or not, not a narrow group of people, but there's definitely a, a, a it's, a, maybe it is a, a, a smaller, a smaller pool of people to, that are, you're going to school with, or that you are being, I don't want to say farmed out to, cause that sounds terrible, but that you are going to other labs and that are coming in to borrow your equipment and stuff like that. But there's not as you couldn't go somewhere else to get away from things. I no, necessarily. that's well, that's the problem, right? Yeah. Is that because there is this big, like it's, it's in some ways, again, not to, it's very similar to a family situation where it's like, if you have a huge problem against an aunt or an uncle or something or a mother or father right. or whatever, well, you know what I mean? Unless the rest of the family decides they also have that problem with them, you're kind of out of luck, right? You either have to, you either have to kind of swallow it um, and move somehow find some way to continue going to family events, or you have to decide that, you know what, this just isn't a thing that I, I can have in my life. Right. Cause it's well, not, it's not good. Yeah. And sometimes, and like, and I would say sometimes it's the family's fault, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not, this isn't to say that, it's up to the victim to make that decision. All I'm saying is that it's very, it's a very similar feel, I guess, in that if let's put it this way, if you're a student who comes out and says that your professor has sexually assaulted you, your mm-hmm. 
future as a scientist is pretty much over. That's just kind of the reality as it stands mm-hmm. right now. And that that's terrible. That's not, that's no good. Right. 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 But I think the other thing is you have to, even before you can make that decision, you have to realize that there's something that's, that's wrong. Right. And I think that that's, that's something that a lot of, I think a lot of women in the sciences and in general are now starting to realize about this behavior. Like well, it's been going on for so long and, but maybe they've, you know, they've it's, and it's such status quo, right. That it's not, they've not seen it as, you know, a, you know, a violation of their, of themselves. It's just been sort of, you know, like as soon as you start to realize that, then you have to have, well, this is what I could do, or this is what I'm, this is what I don't have to do. But I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of women who have graduated from the sciences that look back now and are like, you know, yes, that was definitely sexual harassment. You know, yes, that was definitely messed up. I shouldn't have put up with that type of thing as well. Yeah. So here's the, so here's the challenge with that, right? So let's, Mm -hmm. let's put some historical context on this whole idea, right? Mm -hmm. So there has been an ongoing issue about women being more involved in STEM in particular, right? And part of that is a, there's larger questions here about does, is STEM, like, is it important that more people generally become involved in STEM? Really? Are we putting too much placement or too much importance on science, technology, engineering, medicine, when we should also be, you know, I mean, the world has, in some ways, the West has never been more replete with splendor and money and, you know, gold and chariots and whatever, right? Like, we have never been more disgustingly rich in some ways in the West, yet we are still focusing on people getting jobs. Like, well, why is that even a thing? Um, But regardless of that whole question of like, or not jobs, but, you know, you don't need that many people building bridges if all the build if all the if all the bridges have already been built, right? Like eventually you would think that the penultimate or the the pinnacle of a society would be, all right, we've done enough, we've done well enough that we can all have enough to eat, whatever. Now people can start doing jobs where we pay for art, or we pay for creativity, or we pay for, you know, whatever that is. And in some industries we see that happening and others we don't. Whatever. The Whoa, if we on, look hold on. But hold on with that. I mean, I just as the flip side of that, though, it's like, well, you can't say that that's hap- You can't say that that's that that's the case with the with STEM. Like, do we need more? Do we need more people in STEM in general? Is what your is what the yes question is right? Yes. Yeah, men or women. Well, yeah, absolutely. Why? My thing is like you would because you would because again there's still there's still a lot of work to do i would make the i would guess right? i would mm, i don't know i think that's a, i think it's a topic for another episode but i would actually push back and say that really there are two probably a lot of people in stem that shouldn't be there cuz they don't actually care about stem they care about making money well, right so like yeah but no maybe okay keep going anyways okay so yeah. if we look, if we look at the current trends for the sciences, there, there have been a lot of big gains, right? So, um, 69% of women, 69% of, of students in medical technology degrees are women. 
70, 70, 77% of veterinary science are female. Um, in fact, the veterinary field is so, so dried up with uh, men. They have so few men that they actually will give scholarships for male vet students. Huh. Um, it's one of the few, it's one of the few fields where actually, uh, you know, they specifically look for male candidates. Um, huh. uh, psychology, it's a, uh, 79% are female. Um, mm-hmm. anthropology, 72, ophthalmic, 69, anatomy, physiology, pathology, 64, zoology, 63, forensics, archaeology, 61, pharmacology, toxicology, pharmacy, 61%. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is generally true for biological sciences where we, where actually in some ways it is considered a traditional, I would say a traditionally female field where, they are healing people, right? It's kind of since, you know, in my mind, medicine, biology, those kinds of fields are, there's a less of a barrier for females to get involved in them because nursing has always been such a big deal because the, the role of the medicine woman has always been such a big deal. The midwife, like women in some ways, historically have always been involved in these fields, not at the same rate. And this is awesome that they're getting involved in this way. But to me, there's difference. There's a difference between saying there's a whole bunch of women that are studying, you know, uh, veterinary stuff that are studying biology or medicine mm-hmm. or whatever, then like, that's great in that one field that we are making tremendous strides. That's phenomenal. But if we look at other fields, um, you know, so for instance, if we look at the percentage of women in uh, physics, so it's 49% in social and life sciences. It is 20% in physics. So is this, are these people that are in school for it? Or are these people that are actually using it going on for employment? No, again, these are, these are, these are students. These are, these are students who obtain a bachelor's. No, no. So these are students who retain a bachelor's degree in these fields. Okay. So computer okay. science, it's like 20% physics, 20% engineering, 20% uh, math. It's around bachelor's degrees around 41, 42%. And then it skyrockets um, past there towards social sciences, biosciences, medicine right those are the values where in some cases actually females outnumber male candidates right so yeah well again like not to be not to commoditize it but i think that these figures make a certain amount of sense until you know when you're trying to equate like they're having success or if they're if they are um at a higher percentage, I mean, you ultimately have to look at how, how much money they make, right? Yeah. So actually that's another big important point. Another important point, another important point of this is that actually there is still a, there's still a gender pay gap in the sciences, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also a significant stereotype against coming a mother, becoming, raising a family basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you look at the, if you look at students, if they decide to go on to doctorate degrees, mm-hmm. right? Um, female students will say, well, no, uh, we don't want to because we want to make, we want to raise families or we want to focus on other parts of our life, right? Because mm-hmm. generally a, a PhD is a extremely, extremely time consuming, difficult thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. become kind of a, What's the word? So, so here's a good, this is a quote here from psychology today. 
quote, some of se- some 11 years after the publication of Pinker's seminal text, which is uh, a text on sexism in science, right? Mm-hmm. The scholars Marianne Mason, Nicole, Nicholas Wolfinger, and Mark Goulden asked if family formation mattered in the ivory tower. Their book was called Do Babies Matter? And the answer... And they answered their question with a resounding yes. Their research found that, in general, women who were successful in the academy delayed having children and had fewer children than they had hoped for. And a significant proportion of women who had hoped to form families at some point forewent parenthood altogether. Among graduate students that Marianne Mason had surveyed, more than half of men and more than two-thirds of women view academic careers as being in conflict with family life. When female graduates were asked why they didn't continue on with academic careers after PhD completion, the most commonly reported reasons were, quote, other life interests and, quote, wanting to focus on children, end quote. So there is a huge that is a and that is a, a huge bias that still exists, I would say, where it, people view that if a female is going to go get a Ph.D. or if, if someone who even even a male who seems family oriented that and they tell you this when you apply to schools if they don't mm-hmm. think that you're going to continue on as a professor, some programs will just turn you away because it doesn't help them to create a PhD who goes in industry, right? Like that does not help them. That does not help their pedigree. What helps right. them is churning out more professors. So right. in the sense of, I would say choosing family life or a podcast or, right. uh, you know, uh, or right. any kind of other hobby or other thing that you think is important in your life you know, graduate school science kind of eats that up, right? And the and the the assumption is that you're going to let it eat it up. Well, the assumption is that you're going to let it eat it up if you're a woman. Well, but sure. The assumption for a man is you can do. That's not going to be a problem. What you I, could have I, a family and and be a professor. What I mean to say is that the assumption is that you will allow your PhD studies and your science to overtake all of your other concerns or or plans. Right. Right. But, but that's probably yes, but they probably don't give that speech to men necessarily like that. That concern, I think, again, like the base root of that concern is inherently sexist. Sure. That, absolutely. That Like you are going to um, because you are going to have kids or because you are then then you will have to have some sort of a decision. And the commitment is the commitment and the the responsibility is only on one gender and it's not on men. So it's not like that same conversation is being, is happening or that, and that's, that's the case everywhere. Like just not, not just in sciences, but across the board. Like if you are going to do anything, you have to make a decision on one or the other, or if one is more important than the other, but that duality doesn't exist for an entire other gender, which has never Again, that's like that's that's an unwinnable or an untenable um, situation. It's an un, you know it's an unsolvable problem because you're not, and it's like there's you know a huge amount of books and rhetoric that's been put behind. Can she have it all? Wanting it all? Having it all? And it's like none of those things, none of that has ever been applied to men. Yeah, which is well, sort of. The pro- is the problem in a lot of the ways. Absolutely. Well. No, yeah, for sure. And I think and I think that in many so I think actually though for a lot of even even say for that question of 
how do we deal with someone deciding to have like if I okay, mm-hmm. if I apply to a job yep. and in my job interview, I was like, oh, by the way, I do this podcast and it's going to take up 25 percent of my time. Mm-hmm. Even at work, I'm going to be thinking about it. I'm going to be texting about it. I'm going to be thinking about it, whatever. Mm-hmm. I would think that a job might be like, well, we're not going to hire you then. Right. And thank God it doesn't take up 25% of my thinking time at work. Right. But I, you know, I, I wonder if the same, because like, I, I wonder if the same kind of thinking it's unfair that it gets applied to women primarily because men can definitely be involved with their families too. And sometimes women decide not to have kids, right? Like that's also super fine and super normal. I wonder though, if, like, what is the argument to say that it's sh- it should be something that we don't consider, I guess? Do you know what I mean? Like, to play devil's advocate. Well, to play devil's advocate, you could quit after a week. You could go to a different school. Like, there's no guarantee on anything for anybody. But to make the assumption that a woman is going to take a course of action or has to choose one or the other. Mm-hmm. Or that you are even, that you are even uh, behest to explain the fact that you have a podcast to an employer says that you are at a disadvantage. Right. right? And I, and I expected. Yeah. Well, I'm, I get the analogy like, but that that's that in itself is like, again, is not something that if, if again, like if I look at it, if, if I look at the situations where I have been questioned about leave or maternity or having to take care of a family versus the times that I, that I, that maybe I, my, my husband has, hasn't been, it's, there's still, even to, even to this day, a very clear difference in responsibility. And, yeah. And, I, I get what and, you're, yeah, yeah. I think, I think the, the central point there, or the thing that really mm-hmm. destroys the devil's advocate argument I was making is that the assumption is that you will, because you're a woman, the assumption is that, well, she's going to want to have a kid and that kid's going to interfere with our work. Right. Whereas if they saw a guy who came in in a hockey jersey, they wouldn't be like, that guy must love hockey around the Stanley Cup time. He's going to be useless. We shouldn't hire him. Right. Like it's the same kind of jump. Yeah. Right. It's the same jump in logic. Yeah. Right. 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 And and that's the other thing, too. If a guy comes in with a wedding ring, they don't assume, oh, he's going to be too busy taking care of his kids to really focus on work. He's not going to want to go on business trips. We shouldn't hire him. A hundred percent. That assumption does not exist. Yeah. So, and so I think anything, anything beyond that assumption is almost impossible to deleverage in any, in, in school, in work, in anything that is, that's sort of the, the, the faulty baseline that destroys any kind of, any kind of, uh, you know, rationalization or explanation going out of it, in my opinion. No, totally. And yeah. so, so there are these, I think. And we can even go back to kind of the the original idea, right, of even say as a student, right, mm-hmm. there is a bias amongst um so this is this is a quote from uh, harvard.edu, cfa.harvard.edu. Um it's women in STEM resources, which is actually a really great, really great website. And so they talk about different things about gender bias and sex bias and whatever. And so th- these are two, I think they're very interesting. The first is that 
faculty are actually biased towards male students. And this is from a paper from mm-hmm. Moss Rackison et al., 2012. So, quote, the study used a clever design in which an application modified to be either from Jennifer or John was given to a male or female faculty, faculty member for evaluation. Evaluators in biology, chemistry, and physics departments at six highly ranked research universities were told the resume was real and that the evaluation would be used to develop mentoring materials for science students. There were two key findings. First, Jennifer received significantly lower ratings than John. And second, male and female evaluators were equally likely to give Jennifer lower ratings. The ratings pertain to competence, hireability, and whether the candidate was, was deserving of mentoring. The evaluators made lower salary recommendations by about 12% for Jennifer relative to John. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, an important note here, biology professors, for example, who, whose classes can be greater than 50% female were just as biased as physicists. Women professors were just as biased as men. Junior mm-hmm. professors were just as biased as seniors. So even in the classroom, there is a bias mm-hmm. against female students. And then there's another one here that I think is also very interesting, which is that students are significantly biased towards female lecturers or toward <laughs> female lecturers. So this is from Mengel et al. in 2017. Quote, evaluations place female lecturers, particularly junior ones, 37 slots below male ones. This is largely driven by male student evaluations and more pronounced in mathematical courses, though female students also rated female lecturers lower. In the study, the students had the same course materials, on average had the same grades, and the same contact hours, etc. Another sad and disturbing study showed the same effect when the true gender of the professor was unknown in an online course, but evaluations were higher for the instructors that were given a male identity. The study involved German, Asian, Dutch, and European students. This is especially important to consider for promotions, since women will appear objectively less qualified than an equally male lecturer and may influence tenure rates. So again, there is an implicit bias against female professors. Like, the the part of these that I think is the most interesting is, in both of these studies, they got rid of the possibility that the male lecturers or female lecturers are just different or, or worse or better lecturers, right? In the online course, they didn't know what the lecturer's yeah. gender was. And then by changing the, uh, yeah. by changing the, the identity of the lecturer, the male lecturer was given better grades. Right. Yes. And the same thing in this other one yes. where a male name is given more better scores on hireability and things like that than a female name. It's so it's systemic. It's, yeah. So it's not, it's not like a glass yeah. ceiling or something where it's just these, you know, these, old dudes smoking pipes with, with, you know, tweed suits on and leather patches on their elbows. This is students too, who get into the classroom and think, right. you well, know, it's, it's women's students. I mean, we haven't even got like within, you know, feminism and within women, uh, women of color, especially, yes. uh, you know, versus white, white women, such as myself have even a worse, uh, by exponential worse chance to, to bridge a gap for earning or to, to be able to, you know, have the expl- you know, have people give them the benefit of the doubt in regards to, you know, what we're talking about, the gender role for for family versus not family and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like I don't doubt it. It's a systemic, it's a systemic thing. Like it's like women inherently have um will I I don't I you see the thing is is I'm like I'm not surprised by any of that. Like to me that would be it would be amazing if anything else came out of that that wasn't like people self-identifying 
and seeing other women and and not rating them as highly as a man. Sure. Now, the other thing that's really interesting is that the so this is this is another important point here. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the again from that CFA.harvard.edu site. Uh, Gender pay gap persists. So, quote, the NSF, so the National Science Foundation, looked at the pay gap for recent PhDs across all STEM fields in permanent employment, either inside or outside academia, and found in every one except health sciences, which was equal. Women's salaries significantly trailed men's. Overall, the median salary of $92,000 for men was 24% higher than the 74000 salary for women. In biomedical and biological sciences, women earned $67,500 to men's 77000 In geosciences, atmospheric and ocean sciences, women earned 65000 to men's 71000 In physics and astronomy, women earned 89000 to men's 100000 in engineering, women earned 92000 to men's 100000 Women had lower salaries in all fields of social sciences, including psychology and economics. So, and this is, and this is true as well across their entire, this is true, like the median of their career, right? Mm-hmm. So this is not, mm-hmm. um, this is not just like in your first year or something. Nope. This is starting out or you're just starting to manage people, all that stuff. No, right. And even and this is true, even in their uh, postdoctoral study, what they're paid for postdoctoral study. Right. So male students are paid uh, more than female students are, which is very, very interesting in my mind. Um, So there is these gaps exist and they are significant. And, you know, we're not even talking yet about the more serious stuff, which is literal, which is the actual sexual assault and harassment, right? Yeah, like so this is, be, uh, this is like the, icing on this cake, <laughs> right. on this cake made of broken glass right, and right. Uh, sticks. You've got the poop icing, which is just sexual harassment on top of it. Right. So, Sweet. so we're going to, we're going to yeah. jump, we're going to jump in now to our interview with uh we're gonna jump into the interview so i actually did this interview um a little while ago at this point um which was uh, which was super duper interesting and so mm-hmm. we are going to uh, we're gonna jump r- right into it here so this is our yeah. interview with micah ml dukes uh, who wrote a really great a really really great article here um and uh, let's let's just get into it yeah so let's just dive right in so so actually, I first saw. So first off, thanks for coming on the on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sure, no problem. So, um, so you know, we're we're a show that kind of talks about science and science and philosophy together, and kind of talks about the weird side of stuff. Usually, we're kind of you know we try to be a little bit less heavy, I guess. But you know, this is a really important topic. I think that you highlighted in this article that you did. So uh, the article, for those that don't know. The one that I saw is how the University of Minnesota hides its professor's sexual harassment on city pages. And actually, I originally had seen it on I had originally seen that on Twitter, actually. So why don't you give us a little bit of info? So, you know, without kind of going into the specifics and stuff, but what do you uh, how did you find out about this story? Yeah, I had just uh, the way I started in the story was I just heard through the grapevine, you know, so and so is at the University of Minnesota. The, you know, in a graduate program, and there's a really uh, 
unfair or you know really bad sexual harassment kind of thing happening uh and i first heard about this maybe a year and a half ago um and i said you know well okay let me know you know we'll see what happens as the investigation goes on things like that so there was a formal investigation from the university there was uh <clears throat> there was eventually a, you know some discipline and whatnot so eventually i got a hold of the i requested from the u some of the documents related to the case uh and then some of that you've seen you see in the story uh on city pages and uh yeah so i i really started requesting this stuff around september uh and the so most of that time from September to about April was just waiting for the university to give me documents or to, you know, talk to the lawyers and decide they couldn't give me documents. But mm -hmm. a lot of it just came down to what the university would, would provide and what we could do with that. So. Sure. Okay. So it's, it's a really, it is a large problem. This, you know, the, in graduate school. So I went, I went through graduate school myself. Okay. Um, you know, I went through in the sciences and it is a huge, there is a huge power dynamic kind of, and it's unfair, right? In many ways. I mean, it's mm -hmm. any power dynamic is usually unfair, right? Usually have kind of the person who has power over someone else. And so there's always moral or ethical questions about how to wield that kind of influence or power ethically, right? Mm -hmm. And in graduate school, it's especially, uh, you know, it's, it's almost still stuck in the dark ages, right? Graduate students are kind of, allowed to be what's the word graduate students are pretty much thought to be almost like indentured servants right mm -hmm. you work for this professor and you have to do what they say and you never get a time you know you never get you don't go home if you're a graduate student right you yeah. you're always on you're always doing research you're always supposed to be thinking and writing and whatever you know and uh, some professors are a lot better about that than others are you know thankfully my professor was very very understanding of work-life balance but, you know, I had friends who were in the lab, you know, Christmas morning, they were in the lab, mm -hmm. you know, they, they were there all the time. Yeah. And it obviously, you know, never went to the level that is being alleged in this article. Right. But it is certainly it's not something out of the realm of possibility at all. I think for anyone who's ever been a graduate student, have you have you heard anything else from the university? Uh, they did. They did respond. They gave an official, you know, from their chief PR officer. Uh, Chuck Tombarges. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Sorry, Chuck. Uh, but they they gave a response that basically said, you know, this is a broader problem in our culture, and we're we're doing our best, and uh, we're doing our training and things like that. And there's there's something to that. Uh, this is definitely a broad cultural problem that we're dealing with. But at the same time, the um the the way they address it kind of seemed to, you know just kind of seem to shirk a little bit of responsibility. Maybe they're just kind of like, well, you know, we're doing what we can. So bear with us here. And it's like, well, this is a really serious problem. You know, this is something that significantly affects a lot of people. And those of us who aren't at the university or who aren't um, female mm -hmm. are a lot more affected by it than those of us who are not. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a huge it's interesting that I guess, you know, so my co-host is my co-host Marie couldn't be with us right now for this interview, you know, but it is kind of interesting, I think, that 
So academia is definitely still a male dominated field, mm-hmm. right? Especially the sciences, you know, yeah. and there are some fields that are definitely more male heavy than others. And actually biology, biological engineering and chemical engineering tend to be a little bit more. Um, those, those tend to be kind of more, uh, have a, a higher ratio of say male to female uh, people, right? Okay. Working in the fields. But it is kind of interesting. I think that, in many ways, this is a problem that's being addressed, you know, with, I mean, we're two guys talking about this, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So it's kind of, you know, um, we would love to get any female listeners. If you have any uh, you know, thoughts on this or whatever, please let us know. And we'd be happy to, I'd be happy to share them with you, you know, for sure. So what do you think? Where do you think, have you been contacted, I guess, by any other people writing about this or any other universities? Uh, yeah. So I talked to, I recently talked to some some folks at the American Chemical and Engineering News. Sure. Uh, they, which is a trade publication, mm-hmm. um, they, so they're just talking to me about you know we're working on a similar stories. Want to kind of hear how you, how you worked on yours, that kind of thing. So we talked about some of those kind of details, uh, and I've had some other people contact me as far as you know like to tell you more about some of the things at the university of Minnesota. So I'm working on those stories and mm-hmm. um, obviously if any of your listeners have their own stories to tell, I would be happy to talk to you. Absolutely. So, but yeah, I haven't talked to anybody outside of um, any other publications outside of CEN. So. Sure. Yeah. It's, you know, I actually get, I get CEN like twice a month, I think. Mm-hmm. So actually I'll be looking forward to that article um, when it finally drops. Yeah, it seemed like they were going to go ahead and it seemed like they had requested some of the they might be doing something about some of the specific professors in the article that I did. So I'm not sure if it'll have my comments in it or anything. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's interesting. So why do you think if you, you know, looking at this graph here that you have the uh, substantiated misconduct complaints, sexual misconduct complaints against University of Minnesota employees um, in from 2013 to 2017, the vast majority are in the twin cities, mm-hmm. right? What, what do you think is, do you think that just comes down to a couple of bad players? Is it kind of a system, you know, a systemic issue that it's kind of, you know, the other, they look the other way. What do you, what do you believe the issue is? Yeah, I'm not sure. So there's a couple, there's a couple of parts playing there though, is that, so one, the twin cities obviously is the biggest campus in the university of Minnesota's system, right? Sure. They have, uh, uh, I'm not sure about the number, but 50,000-ish students, um, if you include the undergrad and the other the other campuses top out at like, I want to say Duluth is the next biggest at like 5,000, maybe 4,000, sure. somewhere so there. So, so obviously you're going to get a lot more. Yeah. yeah, there's a numbers game. But even adjusting for that, you have um, some extra cases at the University of Minnesota that you wouldn't expect just based on the ratio. And um, I don't know. I mean, there's it might be just that the that the reporting and the outreach to the outreach to students to encourage reporting is better at the university at the twin cities campus um Mm -hmm. it might be that just the culture encourages that i'm not exactly sure but Hmm. it's really interesting it's like so i'm trying i'm trying very hard to be uh very like reportery i guess (laughs) but um you know i find it i find it really interesting that so this is a problem that this is a problem that I have I had heard about in graduate school the whole time I was there. Okay. Right? About professors who 
preyed on students or had, you know, would have a little bit too much to drink at conferences and would get kind of weird. And, you know, I was very, I was always very surprised to hear those things in some ways, right? Because I think a lot of people, when they get into the sciences, they have this view of, they have this view of professors, especially as being almost, you know, uh, like a aseptic, um, you know, these figures of learning who are not yeah. human anymore, right? They just kind of, yeah. you know, I mean, it's kind of, it goes back to that same old joke when you were a kid, you know, you thought the teacher lived at the school, yeah, exactly. right? It's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, as you get older, that view, I don't think goes away really, but a big part of the problem, a big part of the problem in my view, at least is the tenure system, mm-hmm. right? That it is, it becomes extremely difficult to remove professors who are found to be doing these things. And especially the, the engineering science fields, especially are dominated by the, like your career as a professor, you teach as you're getting older, right? You, you teach more as you stop doing research, but in the beginning of your career, it is research dominated, right? That's where you're getting the money and you're the one then that's bringing money into the university. So there is, there seems to be an interplay here between both, a view of, you know, these are all smart people. These are all people that are, you know, trained and learned and whatever. And so therefore, you know, we don't expect them to become, I guess both. We don't expect the professors themselves to do something so, uh, so heinous and so uh, bad. Right. But then also I think there's a view that, you know, uh, unfortunately in society, I think there's still a view that people think that, you know, well, smart, smart women don't put themselves in those situations, right? Did you come across any of that kind of feeling when you were reporting on this? This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Um, don't think that I did, just because I didn't get really deep into the um, telling a lot of stories from the, from the perspective of the women who were being harassed, just because outside of the documents, um, sure. which are in the story. Because a lot of people didn't want to go on record and didn't, you know, people don't want to have their names out there. Sure, sure. It makes sense. Uh, But yeah, so the, so there's the kind of the crux of the story is that the, the state, state laws, if a professor or really any employee at the university is found by a university investigation to have violated the sexual harassment policy, um, the, the office that does the investigating if, you know, once they decide, they they take the that decision to the person's boss, and they say, "Do you want to, you know, here's what here's the discipline that we have recommended in similar cases to this one around the university." Uh, they give that they give that recommendation and the decision to the to the person's boss, and the boss says, "Okay, what do I want to do about this?" And they can do a few things. They can make the punishment harsher. They can make it less harsh they can do exactly what the recommendation says or they can do nothing um Hmm. if they do nothing if they say you know well i i like this person i think they're just a misunderstanding or if they say well you know i just 
I'll talk to this person, but I don't think we need to put anything official in their file, things like that. Or if they say, you know what, this is so bad, I, I really have to fire the person, but I don't like them, I'm gonna talk to them first, um, whatever. If the person, if the employee resigns before official discipline happens, or if there's no discipline, then everything by state law is locked down. There's no, mm. the, that employee's okay. name isn't made public in connection with that complaint. So that person can easily, or you know, even if the, even if their supervisor doesn't come to them and say, Hey, look, I got to fire you, but maybe you want to resign first. If they, even if that doesn't happen, um, the employee might still say like, yeah, sure. I expect I will get fired for this. I better resign earlier then it's very easy for them to go on just to resign and go get a new job at a different institution or uh, whether that's university or maybe something in industry. Um, sure. Because their, their past history of bad behavior is not made public. And so a lot of that just kind of, and partly that's not the university of Minnesota's fault, right? They're just following state laws. Um, as far as what they can release about it, but also, you know, the discipline, to my understanding, the the way the discipline system works and the way that, um, you know, the delays in how long from the decision to the to the actual official discipline happening, you know, those things they can control and um, the amount that they redact when they do release these documents, things like that. So, well, the other the other part of this, I think, that isn't being really talked about too much is what happens to the student after the report is made. And what I mean by that even is more say than just simply their professor doesn't like them or something, you know, academics. Uh, so the sciences and engineering especially are so, so rarefied at the top level of like PhD research, right? Mm. Where, mm. you know, even in my field, let's say where I did my PhD, there were probably, you know, a hundred is probably saying too many. There were probably a hundred people alive who even knew what the heck I was talking about. And that wasn't because it was so complicated or anything. It was just because only a hundred people ever cared, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, that's just kind of the way that this research happens, right? You yeah. get to a certain level where it becomes so specific. Yeah. And because of that though, the goings on and the gossip and the problems and the, you know, all this stuff, it spreads really quickly and very easily. And so even within, even within say these major conferences, let's say you're a, I can only again, speak from my own experience. So, you know, let's say you're an engineer, a chemical engineer, and your professor is doing something that you don't like, you don't feel good about, or they're harassing you in some way, you know, you make a complaint and then that professor doesn't get disciplined. Well, now what, what the heck do you do? Mm -hmm. Right. If you're three years, two years in your PhD, do you, you know, you have to start again at another lab. Will another lab even take you after, you know, your professor um, gives a bad recommendation for you? You can't move schools. I mean, it it's basically because these universities don't often support the students strongly enough. And because there is this kind of, I, I don't want to call it a culture, say, of silence, but almost a culture of you know, well, we'll push this under the rug. It, it's the kind of thing that happens, you know, graduate school is a weird time that everyone hates, right? It kind of becomes, it comes to a point where, you know, reporting is, is a very, very risky thing. I think it's a very brave thing. I think it's something that should happen. But un until universities really step up and 
support the students after they make a complaint. I just don't see this thing, you know, I don't see it uh, really moving forward in any significant way. And it's, it's because it is so scary and it can be so damaging to make a claim that then if your professor doesn't get in trouble, well, suddenly, you know, you're, you wasted three years of your life in graduate school and now you're not even going to be able to leave with any kind of degree. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause this university decided your professor was more trustworthy than you were. Yeah. Or, you know, there, there wasn't enough evidence. It just seems, it seems so again, because of that power dynamic, it seems so lopsided the trust that they give to the professor versus the support that they give to the student. Yeah. And so the, the, the example you gave about small fields, some of the cases that I looked at, it was like, you know, a hundred would be amazing. Some right. of the cases it's like, Oh, there might be 10 people in the world working in this field. And, you know, who knows where my professor is on that scale, you know, on that scale of 10 people, but there's only 10. So they all talk to each other because they're all interested in the same exact thing. If I want to go into this field, I'm going to need a recommendation from this person. Um, one of the cases that we, that we reported in the article is the, there was a woman who had been, um, who was being harassed in a lab for a long time. You know, we don't know a lot of the details about her role in the lab or anything like that, but a woman who was being harassed in the lab and eventually left the university, didn't make a complaint, and later was contacted as a witness to another investigation about the same person. And she said, well, look, I, you know, when I left the university, I, I put a letter in my personnel file that said only to be opened in, in case someone is filing a harassment claim against the professor that I worked with, right? Like, mm. She still needed a recommendation. She still needed to maintain a good personal relationship with a person, but she had been mistreated for a long time. And <clears throat> her solution was to put a letter in her personnel file, seal it, and you know, write across the seal, "Don't open unless mm. you know unless this thing is happening." Right. Uh, so they, you know, the university investigation went back and found that, and they said, "Wow, that's here." And inside the letter was a bunch of descriptions about all the, you know. All this harassment. I mean, it's it's extremely smart of her, extremely smart and brave of her to do that. You know. Yeah, and a very difficult, you know, choice to have to make to Absolutely. be like, do I just write something down? What do I do? Because even just putting it in writing, you could be retaliated against for later. One hundred percent. You know, it's it's interesting too with email. It's actually one area where this can maybe help in some ways because there will be a paper trail, right? But so much communication happens one-on-one. -on -one. So mm. much, you know, you go to conferences together. You're alone in the lab all the time. Like, there's so much, I think. It's so important that the people who are running these labs really treat their students as, you know, as human beings. And as, as I don't know, in some ways, I think members of their family even. You know, it's so, it's so important, I think, that you're going to be with this person you know, I, I saw my lab mates more than I saw my wife in graduate school. Mm. You know, I saw them. I saw them every single day. I saw them for 10, 12 hours a day. Um, you know, I'd come home. I would I would eat dinner. I'd hang out with my wife. And then, you know, an hour later, I'd be on the phone with my lab mates again talking about, you know, this machine broke or this experiment didn't go well or whatever. You know, you're constantly in contact with these people. Mm. And so it, it very, very quickly in some ways that's very, it can be very nice because you build this rapport and build this feeling of camaraderie with other people. But at the same time that can go sour so quickly. 
mm-hmm. right? With such little uh, kind of impetus that when it does go bad, and again, we're not even just talking like, I think, honestly, in my opinion, graduate students need significant protections outside of just say, I mean, sexual harassment is a huge issue and it's, you know, probably one of the worst types of harassment that can be um, kind of doled out on someone in this situation. Right. But, you know, graduate students are, again, the, the rights of graduate students are so completely limited. And on top of that, you can add in the secondary layer of a lot of these students are here from other countries and are only allowed in the United States on student visas. Yeah. Right. What happens when a student from, you know, uh, from Korea or China or India or Canada or Germany or wherever, right, decides I've had enough of this professor, I'm going to make a report. And then the university says, well, sorry, you know, we don't believe you. And also you have to go back to your home country. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's it, it can be completely shattering. And so that's why it is so important, I think, that these uh, these groups get more protection. Did you, did you at all look into, I know in the article you didn't really mention this, but did you look into at all the graduate student unionization efforts that are going underway? I didn't. Um, I, I was thinking about contacting the graduate student, uh, what's it called? GAPSA at the university, sure. but I didn't, I, we didn't end up having room in the article for it anyway. So. Sure. Sure. No. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Um, so For those that don't know who are listening, across the country right now, university graduate students are unionizing and deciding they want to kind of get together and try to put an end to some of these abuses that occur, you know, in in things like, you know, working 60 to 70 hour weeks or, um, you know, sexual harassment claims or claims of verbal harassment or just, you know, un unsafe working conditions, right? All these things that can happen to graduate students that currently, you know, in some ways it's taken as almost like hazing, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone that I complained to during graduate school. And again, thankfully I had nothing like, you know, I had a, I had a great time in graduate school comparatively to some people, right. And especially people that have undertaken this or had this harassment occur to them. But you know, when I would complain about graduate school about, you know, we have long hours and getting paid so little and this is horrible and yada, yada, whatever, you know, every, everyone I talked to just kind of, you know, looked wistfully off into the distance and were like, ah, graduate school was terrible. Everyone hates it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had, I had people telling me, you know, oh, I, yeah, I remember I had a nervous breakdown in graduate school. Isn't it great? You know, like, no, it's not great. That's terrible. Like why yeah. we, we take it almost as a badge of honor that it it sucked so bad for so many people, you know, and I find it interesting that professors then when they get to that level, don't try to make it a little bit better, but it's kind of, it's kind of built into the system, right? Mm -hmm. Graduate work is cheap. There is a huge demand for it. And frankly, if, you know, one person says they won't do it because they don't like the conditions, there's another 15 people willing to take that, that person's spot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a perfect storm of where abuses can occur. Right. Really. It's, it's, I, I don't know. I find it so fascinating. So where, where do you hope, I guess this story goes, where, what do you, what do you hope to see come out of this and what other kind of reporting, I guess. So what, cause really I had heard about this at other universities. Your article was the first time that I had specifically heard about it at the university of Minnesota. I, 
you know, I haven't really been here in Minnesota for super long, but you know, uh, this was, this was a school that I was looking to go, go into. This is a school whose research I always, I always looked at and everything. Where do you kind of hope, I guess, to see this go forward? What kind of actions do you hope the university will take into place? And where do you see some, I guess, hope uh, for this problem? Yeah, I think that the, um, there are probably a few things from what I've seen in my reporting, there are probably a few things that could be improved upon. One would be the, you know, the state law that keeps all these things private because yeah. the state law that this, you know, the data practices act, it doesn't just apply to the university of Minnesota. It applies to all of the state, uh, departments. So the department of transportation, department of natural resources, the, you know, employees that work in the capital, all these other things. Um, this, this same framework is in place for them. So if they're, if somebody in the DNR is um, harassing their, the people who work under them, it only becomes public if there's discipline. Um, if somebody who works in the Capitol, same thing. So uh, it doesn't just apply to the University of Minnesota, it applies to <clears throat> a, lot of other, a lot of other workers in the state. And mm -hmm. so that's one thing that could probably be looked at again, the, the personnel data section of the Data Practices Act governs all this and it says the the data practices act is the minnesota law that says you know public information here's what public information is your tax dollars pay for it so here's here's how it should be handled um the the presumption of the act is that most all public information should be made public with some exceptions and then they go into there are sections that go into what the exceptions are when it gets to personnel, people who work for the government in the state, it's the opposite. Everything is presumed to be private with some exceptions. And the exception in this case is, you know, when, uh, when there's been discipline, but otherwise if there hasn't been discipline, then it'll stay private. Um, so things like that could use a look, could use another look, I think from our, from our legislators. Um, <clears throat> There's also the university policies that play into it. So the way that they handle discipline, the way that they uh, handle the redactions, which is the further down in the article, they have a lot of, you can see that they have a lot of leeway. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting seeing those. They have a lot of leeway to just redact yeah. whatever they want. And that's again, the way state law works. But uh, from the examples that we have, and if they want to, if they want to provide more examples, I'm, ready to receive them but from the examples that we have they it doesn't seem to be extremely consistent and it's not really clear what criteria they're using um sure so what so what was the i guess that's kind of a good a good final question i guess is that state law does that require that does that require that uh, places of work like the university keep these things private or does it just allow them to so in other words it's legislated that it be kept private. Could the university be more open or transparent if they wanted to, or is it this law that's keeping them from being able to do so? No. That, yeah. So if the university tried to release more information about these cases, they could very easily be sued by the, okay. by the employees or by other people. So they are, you know, they are just following the law and that's not their fault. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be faulted for that. But if, 
if as a culture that's not something that law is not something that we like then that's something we need to look at so sure yeah and and of course i guess i guess of course you could go back to the view that well the university could always discipline right the mm-hmm. university could mandate discipline in cases like this right mm-hmm. um, you know universities don't have not not just the university of minnesota of course right but all universities don't have a great track record when it comes to you know sexual harassment claims are made against an athlete, against a professor, against a, an administrator, whatever, you know, uh, there really hasn't been, I think, and, you know, I think the data backs this up. They really have not done a phenomenal job of supporting those people that come forward and, you know, um, and making their voices heard and, and believed and make them feel supported, even if ultimately the the resolution of the thing is that, okay, well, there wasn't enough evidence to um, to act on this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because there isn't enough evidence doesn't mean that you presume that the other person is lying, of course, yeah. right? Yeah. They could, uh, whatever, there could be all kinds of things going on, but it is, uh, it's interesting. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Well, listeners, this has been a great, a fascinating chat here with Micah Emil Duke, who uh, wrote this article again, how the university of Minnesota hides its professor's sexual harassment on city pages. I think you're also a writer for the uh, writer for the star tribune. Yeah, I've done some, uh, this was freelance for the city pages. And also I've done some freelance for uh, star tribune. Cool. Okay. And if people want to get in contact with you about this story, about anything else they have about this kind of stuff, where can they reach you? Yeah. Uh, my phone number is 612-293-5088. And I will take, text messages, phone calls. Uh, if people are worried about security and privacy, they can download an app called Signal and uh, they can text me using that. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. And we're back. Okay. All right. So again, for those that are listening here, the, the article was on citypages.com and it's mm-hmm. uh, how the University of Minnesota hides its professor's sexual harassment. Poop frosting. Poop frosting. So, <laughs> and then the, the, here's the thing too with this with this mm-hmm. article is this is not even the this is this is by far by far not the only case like this, right? So we have this is one of the many cupcakes of poop frosting that is out there. Yeah. Now, for many for many listeners, you might remember a couple of cases that came out that were of particular particular importance i guess you would say the first one in 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 a weird way was actually uh this article in in slate on slate is really interesting it's called uh shirt storm by phil plate and it's if if you remember this marie you might remember this too Mm. the european space agency had this mission called rosetta and basically they landed a uh, they landed a a lander on a on an asteroid i think right Mm -hmm. And or was, sorry, it was on a comet. It was on a comet. And it's it was mm-hmm. super, super important news. And they had all these interviews and stuff with people. They had Matt Taylor, the missions project scientist, went on the air to talk about his work and the shirt he was wearing. Like for I don't even know how to describe it. It is it is like one of those if uh, listeners, I know some of you out there were like me in middle school. You had those those silk Dragon Ball Z shirts, right? Oh, and wait, it's hold on. I, do, I got to Google this right this very okay, moment. Okay, okay. It, it's slate shirt. What it's, it's Matt. Matt Taylor shirt is, is I think what you should Google. OK, gotcha. Continue. OK, so 
this shirt, it's whoa, it's a it's ridiculous, right? It's like this. It's this these ladies um, mm -hmm. in bikinis mm -hmm. with like leather on and stuff. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, it looks terrible. Mm -hmm. It's a terrible shirt. I cannot believe this guy wore it. I can't believe he wore it to work, let alone on, on like the most important day of his career, likely. Right. And, mm. um, mm, mm, mm. wonder where he found, uh, I wonder where he found that. So actually it's interesting. Ellie Prizman, uh, Ellie Prizman, who is an artist made the shirt for him. Right. Oh. She's a, she's a, uh, she's a, What's the word? She's like a like an Etsy shirt designer kind of thing. Uh -huh. And so she designed this shirt for him and he wore it. And like it's fine, I guess, if you're I don't know. I would never wear a shirt like that ever. I don't think it's in good taste. I think it's a stupid kind of shirt to wear. It's like a it's ridiculous. But he well, ended he ended up though tone deaf, right? I mean right. just completely like again, like you could argue, sorry, like just to intervene really quickly, just because it's the first time I've seen this shirt. Um I mean, you could argue, hey, what's the big deal? Like he, he, you know, so he wore a shirt with some, you know, what is, who cares? Like, why is this even a big deal? And it's sort of like, again, it takes the idea of it. All of these actions are related and you don't get to isolate something out and say something is not a big deal if it, if it has the communication to 50% of the population that they are an object. Well, They're an object to be, even if the woman made the shirt and even if his best girlfriends are like, no, man, no, Matt, you should go on. It looks great. You should totally wear that shirt. You have to be able to understand a bigger context that you're responsible for. And that's what it that's to me is like, that's wow. OK, please continue. I am just going to sit here and marvel this shirt. So. Here's the the mm -hmm. issue, especially with, I think, this case mm -hmm. was that it is part of a broader problem in astronomy in particular. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So astronomy is astronomy seems to be one of the fields that has it almost the worst, which is really interesting. It, it has of it's hard to tell if this is like mm -hmm. if this is true or if this is, you know, if this is real or is this just kind of a, mm -hmm. you know, is this just like a, a, a parent bias or something, right? Or is this really an important, uh, let me say this again. Is this real or is this just a kind of confirmation bias thing, right? But here's the thing. Looking at studies. So this is from Survey of Academic Field Experiences, F-A-F-E. Trainees report harassment and assault. This is um, this is inappropriate comments at field sites. So uh, forty percent of men said they had never seen an inappropriate comment at a field site, and uh, twenty percent of women uh, said it was frequent. Another twenty percent said it happened regularly, mm -hmm. and uh, forty percent said it happened rarely, and only twenty five percent said it never happened to them for women. Now, the thing is that. This is in an in an uh, an article here that was written by uh, this article is written by mm -hmm. Clancy et al. So Catherine B. H. Clancy, Catherine M. N. Lee, Erica M. Rogers and Christina Rishi. And so what they found, this is their abstract. 
So, quote, women generally and women of color specifically have reported hostile workplace experiences in astronomy and related fields for some time. However, little is known of the extent to which individuals in these disciplines experience inappropriate remarks, harassment, and assault. We hypothesize that the multiple marginality of women of color would mean that they would experience a higher frequency of inappropriate remarks, harassment, and assault in the astronomical and planetary science workplace. We conducted an internet-based survey of the workplace experiences of 474 astronomers and planetary scientists between 2011 and 2015 and found support for this hypothesis. In this sample, in nearly every significant finding, women of color experienced the highest rates of negative workplace experiences, including harassment and assault. Mm -hmm. Further, 40% women of color reported feeling unsafe in the workplace as a result of their gender or sex, and 28% of women of color reported feeling unsafe as a result of their race. Finally, 18% of women of color and 12% of white women skipped professional events because they did not feel safe attending, identifying a significant loss of career opportunities due to a hostile climate. Our results suggest that the astronomy and planetary science community needs to address the experiences of women of color and white women as they move forward in their efforts to create an inclusive workplace for all scientists. Fascinating. So, um... It's so it's it's a very, very big problem, especially. And so here's the thing, too. Um, what they considered to be uh, women of color were all non-white or European women. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, this is this is uh, black or African-American, Middle Eastern or Arab, Native American, American Indian, Alaska, mm -hmm. Alaska Native, Asian or Pacific mm -hmm. Islander, Hispanic, Latino or Latina, multiracial. Um, right. So they found that. They found that significantly um, this was, you know, this was a big problem. And especially in, especially in astronomy, right? And the reason that astronomy has kind of been the focus for some of this is because a lot of very famous astronomers have been, uh, have been removed due to public backlash. Um, and although some of them don't get removed at all, just like in this, in this case, the University of Minnesota, right? So Jeff Marcy was a very famous professor at the University of California, Berkeley, um, who was in the running, in many people's minds, was in the running to be a Nobel, at least a Nobel laureate, right? He was found to have repeatedly, with four different women, four different women came forward and alleged these claims, but uh, they, he reportedly uh, basically uh, gave them unwanted massages, groped them, kissed them, you know, um, just made very uncomfortable situations for them. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. And boy, it would be so much easier if we could talk about black solve right now. Right. I know. Right. Seriously. Now uh, there's other, there's other cases of course too. Right. Right. So, uh, there was Jeff, uh, Jeff Marcy was one. There was then another one, um, at Caltech where, uh, the professor was, uh, was, it's not known exactly who this professor is. I don't think still, but um, Christian Ott is believed to be the, uh, he's a theoretical astrophysicist is believed to be um, the uh, person and nature journal actually confirmed this. He uh, was said to have been again, same kind of thing, um, creating unsafe work environments for female graduate students. And, um, but what occurred though, was that this professor stayed at the university. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, so that's, and again, is another part of this huge problem yeah. is that in many cases like this, right. 
the professor is allowed to stay. Well, it's it's repercussionless, right? And I think it's like just to go back exactly. to the shirt because now you've got me down the rabbit hole on this shirt. I just kind of, if I may read what uh, the woman, so the woman who actually did the shirt, made the shirt for him, was asked by Newsweek. Um, and her name again, I will find it. Um, Ellie Prizman. 34, based in England, uh, is at, actually a tattoo artist, or she removes tattoos. She does some work like that, and somehow this uh, knows the scientist and made the shirt. And it's being asked by Newsweek, some say the shirt is sexist. What's your opinion? And she says, everyone is entitled to have an opinion. It would all be very boring if we all felt the same way about everything. I can see both sides of the coin in this debate. But as it is a style I am into, I don't see it as offensive. But that is just my view. It is up to us to empower ourselves. We can achieve anything we want to if we have the skills to put our mind to it. And then asked again, do you think it's wrong to complain that the shirt is sexist? Again, she says, everyone is entitled to their personal opinion. Sometimes I feel like people can take it too far and get nasty. I feel all views can be expressed adequately if it's done constructively. No one's opinion is wrong or right. It's the delivery of the opinion that I feel should be considerated. So right here you have, in my opinion, a woman who is reiterating sort of the, the depth of, of sexism, the, dex, the depth of the bias, right? And that this is, this is harmless and it's someone's opinion and that opinion is okay. The thing is, is it's just, it's not, it's not okay. Right. It's, it's like if you put, if you put swastikas on a shirt and walked out with it, it wouldn't be okay. Right. Mm. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I think it's like, well, I can see both sides of the debate. No, there's there. It's not a debate. Like there's no, there's no gray area in something like that because that gray area is what enables sexual assault in the workplace because then there's a gray area you know it's like uh, you know then professors you know and people that perpetrate these crimes are not brought to any kind of any kind of justice or anything else or the women who have it happen are left feeling that they're in a gray area did it really happen does this even what did i bring it on was it my responsibility to be more forceful and saying no and so it's like this is what is so amazing is the depth of which it's permeated into women as well. And that to me is like, that's when, that's when you know, it's, it's, it's just the caustic and it's an evil in a lot of ways, because her saying these things seems so rational and it seems so um, logical, but really it's not, you know, <laughs> It's it's part of it's well, it's part of the it's part of the paradox of tolerance. Right. Which was uh, described by Karl Popper in 45. My uh, you know, my my philosopher of science uh, crush, uh, Karl Popper decided to define this in the open society. It's enemies. Volume one. Mm -hmm. um, he actually defined it in a note, which is really interesting because it's a very important idea that he had. But that's the kind of brain that Karl Popper had that one of his notes is super important. Um, quote. Less well-known is the paradox of tolerance. Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, 
then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies. As long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them, if necessary, even by force. For it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument, because it is deceptive, and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant, end quote. <laughs> so the basic idea is uh, very similar to this kind of idea that if we, just because something, just because we want to be open to all ideas and we don't want to, you know, freedom, we want to allow freedom mm -hmm. of speech and things, does not mean that we have to be tolerant of the love of the suppression of speech. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like. Like there are still there are still kind of absolutes yes. out there yes. that that matter. And and in this case, it's sort of I think it's a weird I think the argument about the shirt is even even stranger to me because if that if someone showed up to a job in that shirt, they should be fired. Right? Like I don't unless they're working at a tattoo parlor or a porn shop, like it to me seems so ludicrous that this like, you know I, what i'm saying i know exactly exactly what you're saying i feel like i feel like it is and the the funny thing is like again uh as offensive as it is up to us to empower ourselves so again it's this idea that you can overcome sexism if sex, if if sexism exists you can overcome it just from sheer will you can have we can achieve anything we want to if we put our skills and mind to it, which is a lie. Sure. That's the lie, right? Because that's not the case for anybody, whether, you know, you can't achieve anything if you put your mind to it from sheer gumption. You will always have privilege or um, money or something that is going to be on your side that you are aware of or not on your side that you're not aware of or vice versa, you know? And I think yeah. that that's, that's the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do anything you put your mind to it. You know, crying about something like this only holds women back. And it's the, and it makes us look like, you know, shrill harpies, that type of thing. That's, that's the, that's the root. That's the lie. And I think that it's, it's so, um, palatable to believe because you want to believe that hey you know what it doesn't exist i can do anything i want i get up in the morning that's a that's what i tell that's what i tell other women that's what i tell other men that's what i tell my daughter but the fact is is that is not the truth and every day you're reminded in some small way why it's not the truth and my, me myself i'm reminded much less than again than women of color are reminded of it quite what I can only imagine is an ear shattering, soul crushing amount on a daily basis. And that's what I think shirts like this just get to, again, just get to sort of, just get to sort of, uh, I don't want to say rub your nose in it, but, you know, just get to sort of be just, just that much more irritating. Well, it becomes, it becomes the problem, I think, again, of like, mm -hmm. I mean, this is kind of something we, we touch on a lot in this show, which is, you know, kind of just the, the base realities of like 
of living and of living in a in a world right that has facts some things are just not true right and one of those not truths i think i'm I'm sorry horatio Mm -hmm. alger you know is the myth of you know you can always pull yourself up from the bootstraps right Mm -hmm. that you know a uh you know the chances of the chances of a of a guy who's you know just graduating high school in the middle of the United States who isn't going to go to college who you know grew up in a family that never attended college that you know that person has a lot against them and i think part of the problem or maybe not part of the problem i think part of the issue that kind of has been present in a lot of our discourse politically at least right now is that it feels like it's it, we have been so ingrained with the idea that it's all a competition right and that because you know because whatever a a, a black kid has it worse in some instances than a white kid does and because you know uh because there are some black kids that have it better than some white kids right because we have this idea of like we're all competing with one another. It's like by pointing out that someone else has had a rough time, you're in some ways like giving up that you had a rough time too. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's this idea I think that people have, or people want to have where like it's, it sucks for everyone, but the Kardashians (laughs) and like, and like, you know what I mean? Like, like it, like, yeah, it sucks. The poor keep getting poorer and we need to fix that. And just because you're, not as poor as the guy down the road or they're a little bit, you know what I mean? Like it, all of us, all of us should be working together to make it more, to make it better for everyone. Like, who, you yeah. know what I mean? Well, like, and I, think, it, and I think that that, but that idea of the bootstraps also lends into, there's not enough to go around, right? That there's only a, a that our rights are this are like pie, right? Is, the, is my favorite analogy. And there's yeah, only the, so much right, the zero there's sum only game. so much to go around, which is a lie. Like you having the right to marry, you know, is great. And if gays and lesbians want to get married, that doesn't take away from your right to get married. You right. know, and I, that's that's yeah. the thing I've it's, never again, like, but I think that the two things they feed off of one another. And it's again, it's 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 a narrative that is emotionally easy to buy into and can make you feel like you're it feels like strength and that's that's where i think you start to you that's where it starts to break down i agree with you though yeah yeah the the wonderful thing though so one of the good things about some cars i think have a small riot out in the suburbs (laughs) 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 so one of the good things about science in some ways is that because we because we focus so much on things being right or true there has been though a lot of wonderful advancements made by female researchers that in the past maybe were overlooked that you know have have kind of come back to the forefront mm-hmm. right so uh, here's a couple of really cool ones that the uh, Igor dug Woo! up for us here. So uh, Jocelyn Bell Bernal discovered pulsars in 67, and she actually got a Nobel Prize for that. Uh, Esther Letterberg 
was a microbiologist who discovered the Lambda bacteriophage, which is uh, basically it's it's it, she developed so much important stuff, really, uh, that it's uh, she worked with her husband and her husband actually got a Nobel Prize for physiology or medicine. Um, but her work was also extremely important and she was overlooked for it. Um, Chen Xiong Wu Sung Dao Li and Chen Nin Yang uh, basically disproved the law of parity in quantum mechanics, right? Which is awesome, which is crazy, um, which is amazing. But again, in this case, Wu was left out of their 1957 Nobel Prize, even though she was fundamental to the idea, right? right? Um, I'm just over here. Wait, I'm just getting gas. And then we have some other. Just keep going. <laughs> we have some other ones here too. So, Dr. Vera Rubin uh, found the first empirical proof of dark matter, yeah. right? Um, she uh, she was rejected by Princeton initially uh, when she applied for a graduate degree because they did not their astronomy program did not accept women. Um, that was in '48, and they actually had that policy until '75. Yes, uh, way later than they probably should have. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, Marie, Maria Margaret Kirsch uh, was uh, lived in the 1600s and early 1700s. She uh, discovered a comet in 1702, and her husband took the public credit for it, um, which is insane. And then Emmy Noether is uh, one of the most influential figures in mathematical history. Um, Einstein said she was the most important woman in the history, woman in the history of mathematics. And then took credit for her um, entire discovery. (laughs) Well, yeah, she, she, uh, she actually was not allowed to uh, give a lecture under her own name for uh, the beginnings of her career. So it's, you know, to say that these issues, like these issues have gotten better, but I even have, I even have an experience in my, I have a story from my own experience that made me so completely uncomfortable. It did, I, I have never been sexually harassed or anything like that, but we, we had a professor come and give a talk at my university when I was in graduate school. And he is a super big name in his field. Uh, and he was giving a talk on his research and he, he offhandedly mentioned, he was like, you know, um, and then one day uh, into my life came the most, the most beautiful graduate student I'd ever seen. Right. He said this to a room full of, of graduate students, mm-hmm. um, many of whom I think, I think m- more than half of us were female. Um, he said this at a lecture with again, like a 50% female faculty, everything else, whatever. And then he was like, you know, and then her work was so great that I married her. Ha ha ha. And no one laughed. <laughs> Right. It was just super uncomfortable. And afterwards, everyone was like, what the what yeah, was that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what was that about? That is disgusting. Yeah. Like, it still happens. Oh, it still yeah. happens. And and it, it, it and the, impo- the important thing, I think, is that it is. It is great that things are changing and things are getting better, but the evidence is everywhere oh, that God. it still happens. Yeah. So. Us as young people in the sciences, as people starting their careers off, whatever, we just have to have a zero tolerance policy for this kind of stuff, right? Like, if if you see something like that, you should say something to someone, right? So I I know 
when that happened, so many of us went to our advisors and were just like, that was uncomfortable and weird. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it, it can just be something as simple as that. And, and, I and think, it's. Yeah. And I think if it does happen to you. That you should, you know, take the time to hear your own voice about why it, why something makes you uncomfortable and know that you're not alone in that discomfort. Right. Because the thing that right. can the thing that happens a lot is you feel like you there's you've misunderstood you're you know you're wrong you won't be heard and I think it's time for women to put down or to work together to put down that whole burden that they've been carrying we've been carrying for so long yeah and start to say you know it's not this is not appropriate and tell people and get mm -hmm. your stories out there because the more you hear about other experiences, the more you have a voice and the more you use that voice for whatever you want to say, the more you find that you're not alone. And that there's a lot of people out there that not only have shared experiences, but also do not believe that it's, they have no tolerance for, for that type of behavior. So that's what I would encourage. Sure. And I know that it's hard, you know, and it's hard too when you're, when you are a younger person, I like, I think that that's, that is something. And I, I, I am encouraged by seeing like the generation after mine, definitely having more of a voice about, about things like that. So I applaud that. And, I, I and now I'm going to go, uh, and now I'm just going to go burn down some cars. Now that I got my Molotovs all set up and I've got my, 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 my <laughs> handkerchief for covering my face. You know, I, I just got to get the, I just got to oh get the goodness. sitter to take care of Julia unless she wants to come with me, which is totally fine. You know, that's good too. Goodness. Goodness. All right. We also, we also <laughs> though, uh, if you do have a complaint like this, I mean, what happened in the university of Minnesota does happen at other universities too. Oftentimes the department may not be your best, uh, source no. or your best recourse. Uh, I would suggest you reach out to some other organizations too. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of good or places that you can do. Reporter. Uh, you can you find that stuff. No, seriously. <laughs> well, make I it, mean, the thing too is, it's like if you want to be, there's nothing wrong with that. If you feel like this is a story, if you feel like this needs to be known, you should make it known. It should be known. It should be known. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, uh, great. Well, mm -hmm. listeners, thank you so much for listening. Next week, we announce the listener who oh won my God, the painting. The haunted painting. Painting, mm. haunted painting, which mm -hmm. is very, very exciting. It's resting in a and, pool uh, of, and we'll be uh, back in one week. Sticky red fluid. I think maybe blood. Terrifying, <laughs> terrifying. And we'll be back in another week with an episode on economic collapse. Getting back to some crazy conspiracy uh, junk. Yeah, and one of these days we're gonna do exciting. Something, uh, I don't know, light, light and fun, economic. Yeah, collapse. one of these days. Please do something <laughs> that light and fun. No, I'm teasing. Cool. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon. 
where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Yes, we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.